Got yeah, it. I mean, I have the most biblical name on the podcast. I think we can at least agree to that. <laughs> More biblical than Matthew? Matthew? Yeah. Because does the first Matthew appear? What? Uh, I mean, if you open up the New Testament. <laughs> it's the first book. Yeah. Okay. Like what? All the way back there? I, are you oh, counting the clay? clay? Are you counting the clay is clay. in the Bible in the beginning? Are you counting the mark and, uh, of uh, the mark of Cain as the first mark? He's talking yeah, about I got Adam. clay and mark, man. Like all over Genesis. Oh, you got mark. literally man was made out of clay, and then Don't you've got play. the mark of the beast. Oh my gosh! And then you've okay, got mark, the mark of Cain. You, you. He is the Potter. Kathy I am the now. clay. Yep, Kathy is completely out. <laughs> Kathy. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 298. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. I'm Kathy Kong. And I'm Matt Michelotis. Author uh, of the Story King. <laughs> That's right. Uh, this is another very special episode of the Fascinating Podcast, where one of our own is releasing a book. Uh, a so, very special evening. <laughs> uh, Matt, this is the the thrilling and well reviewed finale to the Sunlit Lands trilogy. That's right. So, so I thought in honor of that, maybe we could start by talking about some of our favorite and least favorite trilogies. Uh, and by favorite and least favorite, I'm really particularly interested in trilogies that you felt ended well and trilogies that you felt really blew it in in trying to stick the landing. Um, mm. So, for instance, uh, Back to the Future, I know, is pretty divisive. A lot what? of people really hated the last or a lot of people feel like the third Back to the Future film where they go back to the Wild West was by far the weakest installment. What? No, oh. backwards. It's the second best of the installments. And number I know two it's not as worst. strong. It's not as strong as the others, but it's certainly a satisfying trilogical conclusion. Trilogical. Trilogical. Um, yeah, that's a dinosaur. <laughs> what? But yeah, um, I, I, I thought it, I thought the trilogy ended well. I enjoy that the third movie. I think when you say ended well, Matt, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, you got some sort of resolution with the characters. You were reminded of what you enjoyed about the trilogy in the first place. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like fun and hope filled. It, it was it was what you would expect. For, it was if someone your future's said, not determined, Marty. No said, one's here, is. So go live. A kid traveling through time, you'd be like, ah, I'd love to see him do a couple things actually in time, and they did it. So I think it was fun. Nice. Clay, yeah. Clay, what, what? If you're thinking about greatest greatest finales, uh, for, you know, for trilogies of all time, what, what's going to make your list? Does it have to be exactly three? No. Well, that's what a trilogy. Is. Well, I mean, so so so. Are, for example, are you going to say Star Fast Trek Nine? went six? <laughs> Star Trek went six. So we're at kind least of in a base seven, three, kind of twelve. No, no, they did. No, they did not. You're talking the about original the original cast. So yeah. would you say that was six was a, a satisfying conclusion to the Oh I love six so hard, even though the sextology. You know, the, all, all, all I mean, I would say six is a great movie. I don't know that it's like a great it doesn't feel like it's um Wait, is that authoritative. Generations? No, that's um 
uh, undiscovered country. Oh. I, I don't know. Yeah, if, I don't know if I remember that one. Oh, it is. It is terrific. If you don't remember it, you should revisit it. But I don't know okay. that it felt to me like this. This is the last one. And so here, it, you know, here, here is your resolution. It didn't is that the feel one where the Klingons speak Shakespeare. Yes. Hmm. I mean, they were all retiring. Um, I jest a little bit. I mean, that's a very, that's like a 50 year long property. So it's not exactly. Uh, it's not exactly at all a trilogy. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Well, then we, we also have like, you know, recent trilogies like Harry, well, no, like the Hunger Games that they turned into four <laughs> movies. Harry Potter, you're so bad at trilogies. <laughs> no, that's a good point. A lot of movies have been splitting adaptations into multiple pieces. I uh, look at the yeah. Hobbit movie, which was based Hobbit movies based on one book, and it was what four movies. So here's a question, specifically brought up by the Hobbit, and I would extend that to Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people talk about the Lord of the Rings as a trilogy. I would argue it's not, it's not a trilogy in the purest sense because it is one singular story that's just broken up. In, in some art, and I would say almost even arbitrary places because the Two Towers film ends in a different spot in the story, even than the book mm. does. It was literally that they didn't have the printing technology to make it into one book. It's gigantic. Well, yeah. and also, I guess on the flip side of that, there are franchises that have made three movies and they weren't, I mean, there was a continuation of a character or a setting or something, but they weren't actually a trilogy. Like, Here's a bad example, or an example of a bad franchise, Highlander. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, they made a second and third. They actually made a fourth movie, I think. But, like, that was those were terrible movies. But they weren't really, like, continuing, you know, one yeah, story. Yeah, I, I mean, I would put, like, any of the, uh, any of the like, like Bad Boys, Die Hard, um, Lethal Weapon, like, those, those film franchises, even the Fast and Furious, which, you know, the ninth film is coming out, like, Right, they're just they're just new stories in that universe. They're not like a true trilogy. In again, in what I would say is like the purest definition, like the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Well, and Highlander is a great example where the whole story was told in the first movie, and then they're right. like, "Oh, surprising! That made money." And then yeah. they just start. They're like, "What if we made a second movie that was somehow took place during the first movie somehow?" Wow. And is that why you wrote a trilogy, Matt? You wrote the first one. You were like, oh, this is making a lot of money. Uh And I'm going to write a second and a third. Because as we all know, we are rich and famous authors. Uh, It was more the fame than the wealth. You know, I have plenty of wealth. People stopping me in the street saying, are you going to continue this story? And I was like, you know, maybe I will. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Matt, correction for those Highlander fans out there that are protesting. And especially now that the series is being relaunched the second highlander movie did not take place within the timeline of the first it was post highlander one no that's not right is it that's pause because i thought there was only one at the end of the first highlander in the first like in the last couple seconds we see that what's his face becomes the one that is only one yeah he won the prize yep oh and the second one and so he was the first ninja warrior right that's how I remember the I, second uh, movie not making sense, but maybe I'll have I, to go Yeah, back a lot of people... It, it, <laughs> maybe it that's bad. why. <laughs> I sadly may be the human who has seen it more than anyone else. Oh, wow. That is you sad. Uh, okay, so, so for <laughs> me, when I, when I talk about trilogies, I love to just point to the original Star Wars trilogy. 
Yes. Um, because here are three films. But that's six movies. No, it's nine. The original <gasps> Star Wars trilogy is what I just said. Um, so it's you have you have three movies that all tell their own individual story, but there is also a larger story happening across mm. the three films, mm-hmm. right? Which is a farm boy who who defeats the evil empire. Um, and I think that's actually really hard to do well where you have each individual uh, installment of a trilogy stand well or pretty well on its own. Uh, But then you also have this really satisfying thing. So like when I point to things that did this badly, I point to things like the hunger games and divergent, which are two of the more popular recent young adult trilogies. Uh, I think both of their third books were pretty terrible. And you had two really solid first installments that had a really interesting world that stood more or less on their own. Um, you know, you kind of did the thing where the second book expands the world quite a bit. Um, but then they really both fell down pretty hard in the finales. And, and then for some reason, those final books were the ones that the studios thought were worth splitting into two. Mm-hmm. Um, Clay, I will never forget when we were we saw a preview in front of another film we were out at the theater watching when we did such things for, I think the third divergent movie or maybe the second one. And you leaned over and pointed out that the dialogue in the film must be so bad that there was not a single complete line of dialogue in the whole trailer. Like everything was like cut. (laughs) It was like, yeah, much to the chagrin of Amanda. Listen, I was not going to call that out clay. Cause you know, she listens to the show. (laughs) They literally couldn't find a coherent sentence to put in the trailer. If you watch that, Oh man! So, it's yeah. not like John Wick, which nailed the landing. Except it's not done yet, right? Like they're still going. <laughs> right. Yeah, and they're getting a TV show, and this is the problem: yeah. you start making money, and the story's not allowed to end anymore. Tentpole, Matt. Tentpole, just like Son of the Lamb. So, so Matt, genuinely curious. You you have authored at least we'll see um, a true blue trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if it, you know until we'll, it makes tons yeah, of money. That's right. We'll see and if then, yeah, it'll definitely sell out. Like, if you guys want to see me sell out, go buy a lot of copies. <laughs> oh, also, I think we should mention that at one point you made a verbal agreement, which we are totally holding to. That if this becomes a bestseller, you will get the cover of the Story King as a full back piece tattoo. Right. I believe that was if it made Ooh. the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. So, so there you go. You can see Matt sell out, and we will uh, put it on TikTok. Uh, him getting the tattoo. I will personally I mean, accompany it, him. You're not going to want at that least video, get but. us, <laughs> at least get us like a Lennel trapper keepers or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how much of the trilogy, like how much of the story did you have mapped out when you first started writing the first book, the Crescent Stone? You know, it's interesting. I knew you're going to ask that. And I was trying to think about it this morning. Uh, so, a couple things happened. One is the first book, I had a decent idea of when I, when I set out and the second book, I knew what I wanted to talk about and some things that were going to happen. The third book, I think what happened when I was writing the Crescent stone is that the character Jason Wu ends up becoming a much more major character than in my original idea. And he really took off and he was one of those characters that doesn't behave himself. Like he never did what I wanted him to do. So like in the second book, I had this whole quest plan for him that was like six chapters long and he literally figured out a way to ditch it uh, and get the information he needed in a page. So I was like, oh, you jerk. (laughs) Like he's just wrecking stuff all the time. Um, 
So actually, when I got to the third book, I was entering into some uncharted territory in a variety of ways. One in that uh, another character that's pretty important uh, was no longer a part of the part of the equation. Um, so it moved the story onto some different characters. Uh, so I think this might be one of the few books that I didn't come in knowing what the ending was when I started, except in the sense of like, I knew the very, very last line. I knew the last sentence, but, uh, when you, when you read it, you'll see the last sentence is something that isn't particularly revelatory about the, uh, the plot and what's happening. Uh, it's a, it's a traditional last sentence, uh, in a variety of ways. So yeah, I didn't. I knew what I wanted to talk about. I had some idea about it, um, but yeah, I was. I didn't know at the beginning of the trilogy how it was going to end. Okay, so I, I got to add. Oh, go ahead, Clay. Sorry, I, I, that's surprising to me, Matt. Especially knowing how you've done some other um, work in the past. Did you have? Wasn't there even like one character where you just knew for sure from the beginning? what was going to happen and it didn't change. I I knew some, there's some pretty big revelations in the third book that I knew about. So there's some stuff related to Darius and his story. Um, So Darius is a character in the first and second book who kind of comes in. uh, He's African American. He's coming in and sort of fighting for justice in the sunlit lands. And there's some things related to him and his family and his connection to the sunlit lands that I already knew about, uh, which I'm really pleased with how it plays out in the third book. So I had an idea with him of where things were going to go. I knew a couple things about Jason and where that was going to go. I knew the main problem for, um, for Shula. And I knew some stuff that was going to happen with some of the LNL. So like uh, Galenia and Hanali, I knew some of the events we needed to uncover. Uh, but I didn't actually know how it was all going to come together and what the end of the, end of the story was. Okay, so you wrote a fantasy trilogy that's about systemic injustice. Yeah. And you didn't know how you were going to end it. That has to have been terrifying. Yeah. You know, that Flannery O'Connor says that she said that she wrote to discover what she knew. And I, I think there's a piece of that in it that I don't, I think this question is so complex and I've been learning from a lot of smarter, wiser, more experienced people than me about these things. Uh, and I invented a world with some baked in injustice in it and trying to discern what the answer is, I think is something we fall into. That's a trap. Uh, and so I wanted a, a space that we could experiment and see what are some of the potential answers. So, you know, the first book is really about privilege and power and how those things intersect and com- complicity in injustice. Uh, and then the second book is really about like, okay, if you deal with your personal complicity, what do you do with the fact that there's still societal injustice across the board? And then in the third book, I really wanted to dive into kind of a bigger question about, yeah, uh, history and memory and the stories we tell and how they change the world, basically. I love history and memory. <laughs> I know, Clay. Do you, Clay? I think you'll like this book. That's, that's fascinating, Clay. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> what we're here for. So, Matt, I'm curious. 
um, as we are recording, we just, we meaning the royal we here in the United States, um, pay, have, we've paid more attention. Uh, it was the 100th anniversary, if that's what you want to call, um, uh, for the Tulsa mm. massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, would love for you to kind of unpack a little more. One of the big themes you mentioned um, in your trilogy is around history and the importance of cultural memory. Um, And maybe Clay, because you have just told us for the first time that you're interested in history, (laughs) you know, isn't that just what happened in the past? And it's a, it's a record. It's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Objective and yeah, unbiased. It's, <laughs> right. It's stagnant. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, the, Tul- the, the Tulsa massacre is a great example of a really huge historical event where some people chose you know, white folks, right. Went in and purposely destroyed a community. Uh, and it's not, it's not in any, it's not, uh, not in any history book. You certainly probably didn't hear about it in high school, right? I learned about it, uh, watching Watchmen on HBO. Okay. So yeah, a bunch of people learned about it in Watchmen just in the last, what is that? A year ago? Yeah. Two years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and, and they even yesterday I was listening to a radio, uh, article that was saying like, there's a piece of that that's really beautiful that people know about it now. And there's a piece about it. That's really sad that it took a superhero TV show for people to become aware of something that happened in history. Uh, or, you know, last week I was driving with Micah out to the beach. And as we passed the expo center here in Portland, I just told her this was an internment stop for, for, uh, Japanese Americans and kind of explained that story to her. She'd never heard it. She starts crying. Right. And I posted on my Facebook about this story and there's all these people saying in Portland, oh, I have no idea. And this is a place you drive by every day. Uh, if you're going on the highway, it, it, it happened within living memory. Like we have people alive in Portland who were living in the expo center for five months. Uh, and there's all these people who don't know the history, not because it's hidden. There's actually a memorial at the expo center, uh, but because we choose not to include it as a major event. And that's part of history, right? You got to choose, you pick and choose what you put in. But some people were responding like, well, did you tell your daughter about Pearl Harbor? Well, no, my daughter already knows about Pearl Harbor. That's part of the cultural memory. That's something that we've said is important that everyone knows. It's in every history. American history, it's absolutely going to include Pearl Harbor. Uh, Probably at length, right? So I don't know, Clay, you probably have some thoughts about this. Well, yeah, I, I... I struggled for a couple of years when I was teaching students who didn't care about history. Uh, I, I would kind of lean into the, like, here's why this is important, guys. Here's why this is important. And I, I, I moved on to the memory part uh, a little bit in. And I'll be curious to come back to how this uh, plays out for your characters in a minute. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people just don't realize that history is nothing more than our memories, right? Like you say in recent memory, in living memory. Mm-hmm. But we don't always... First of all, we can't remember what we didn't see. Right. We can't rely on our memory of what we saw to be accurate. Mm-hmm. 
And if you ask most people what's more powerful, the myth or the reality, it's typically the myth, right? The story that we believe is more important than the story that was. I chopped down so, the cherry tree. Right, exactly. You know, never never told a lie, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so so I'm, I'm fascinated by all of that and, and interestingly how we tell the truth of history through our myths of storytelling and things like the Sunlit Lance trilogy. So I guess with this idea, Matt, that, that you know this about human nature. Yeah. You know that... I mean, even when we're being honest and sincere, we might be wrong. As a history teacher, I know I was on plenty of things. I just didn't uh, know it right or, or remember it correctly. Um, do you do that in the minds of characters? Because I know you described Jason Wu, and he's like one of those guys that's like squirrely, and he gets away from you, and you can't even control him. <laughs> and then there's other characters who do exactly what you want. Are, are you having them very purposefully look at the world they are in and yeah. deceive themselves and misremember yeah. and so on. So, so yeah, the, man, yes. Every character in this book, every major character is dealing with this question in some way. So Shula Bashara, who's from the middle East has these horrific memories of some stuff that happened in her family. And so this is personal memory, right? And she discovers that her memory is maybe not wrong. She's not misremembering, but incomplete. There's mm-hmm. something missing, right? Uh, and she's given incontrovertible evidence that what she remembers, that there's a piece that is missing. Uh, and she sets out to discover it because it's very personal. Um, we have we have an Elenil character uh, who are like kind of the, the top bosses, right, in the Sunlit Lands who discovers that there's a piece of communal memory, societal memory that's been purposely suppressed uh, to keep power. And she has to dig into that and discover why she's a part of the system. Why is that? Mm. Uh, Jason is discovering the power of story and how the stories we tell influence cultural memory, that they, they change not just what we believe, but who we are. Uh, and then, and then Darius also in a really personal way is discovering that sometimes, uh, our family histories are fictive, right? That there's pieces of it that just by nature of being in a family, you haven't been given the whole story and that it absolutely has defined who he is today just by its absence even. And it's saying something about his future as he starts digging into the truth of his family. So, and I think that's part of it, right? There's, there's. When we talk about memory and history, there's our personal memory, right? Like, Clay, different people in the same family have different ideas of what happened in Christmas of 84, right? That big blow up and whose fault it was and whatever. Um, And then as we start moving into larger, like, communities or nations, we start to see this idea that there's, there's an official history, right? Like, this is the story we're going to tell about who we are. And it creates the world around us. It creates our expectations. Like, uh, like when I shared about the uh, Japan thing, uh, people saying, but did you be sure to tell her that America's the good guys? And I'm like, well, okay, that's our, that's our cultural history. That's, our, that's the story we like to tell ourselves. Uh, a lot of people push back. I said, these were concentration camps. And they're like, no, 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 no. They're internment camps. That's disrespectful to Jewish people. I'm like, FDR literally called them concentration camps. 
here's the definition of concentration camp. Here's where it came from. Jewish activists today say, call it concentration camps and call the Nazi ones death camps. Uh, but so why are we fighting against that? Because, because our preferred story is being challenged. Our history is being challenged. And that's what I wanted to get at in the book is like tearing all that apart. Not because our, our stories aren't necessarily false. Our history isn't necessarily false, but we need to be able to look at it and see where the seams are and see where the gaps are and say, what are we hiding here? What are we choosing not to say? And really, what does this say about us? Um, even stuff like I posted on Twitter a while back, uh, when you're looking at two sides, you know, at war and, and you're trying to figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, it might be the people killing children, right? And people were like, well, both sides are killing children. And I was like, okay, <laughs> right? And what government's <laughs> complicit in giving them all weapons? They might be the bad right. guys too, right? Uh, but I think that, and people are, oh, that's simplistic. Well, yeah, I happen to think that a lot of moral uh, ideals are pretty simplistic. Don't murder children is a, that's a pretty simple thing, but it has huge ramifications as we're looking at our culture and our history. So I For both sides. On both right? sides. Like, For yeah, both exactly. sides, right. And right. And I think that's why people think it's more complicated because you don't want to be on the bad right. side. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. <laughs> Kathy, stop it. You're going to make me feel bad. <laughs> right, right. Heaven forbid you as a white man feel bad ever. Oh, gosh. Right. Right? I, Ever. I saw a terrible article <laughs> this morning about, like, you know, Doctor Strange was originally going to be at the end of WandaVision. But Kevin Feige said, ah, it kind of takes away from Wanda's story to have this white man show up with all this power and say, let me show you you're doing it wrong. So he decided not to do it. This giant article, 2,000 words, about how, wow, I guess white men can't be the heroes anymore. I was oh like, gosh. okay, interesting. So the story we're telling is striking at your story, right? Where the white right. man is always the winner at the end, the, the victor who comes in and explains things. Uh, but it was it, so fragile, right? This TV show I like made a decision. I didn't even know about it. But now that I know about it, it's, it's terrible. Uh, yeah, pretty fascinating. Um, I don't know if y'all heard, but Texas legislators passed a bill barring... Uh, Texas public school officials. So any, anyone from like a superintendent down to like a classroom teacher, you know, and everyone in between from teaching critical race theory in, in Texas public schools. Mm. And it's, and, you know, Matt, you talked about, you talked about Shura being given this incontrovertible evidence that her memory was incomplete. Yeah. And a lot of the debate uh, that's such a kind word for it. A lot of the nonsense uh, around, critical race theory goes back to the 1619 project that came out a couple of years ago from the New York times that, that started reexamining a lot of the way that we tell American history and reframing it from the perspective of black Americans. And go ahead, Matt. Sorry. No, no, keep going. Oh, uh, so that's not, that's not like the whole of critical race theory, but certainly 1619 Project and other things like it are informed by critical race theory. So I just wanted to read uh, an excerpt from the bill and then uh, just kind of get some reaction to it. Uh, because on one hand, 
it staggers me how deeply they are willfully misunderstanding critical race theory and what CRT teaches, but it also like really resonates with a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of our willingness to hear other voices and other perspectives as we are creating the official history. So um, I'm going to read the first part because I think it's actually like, okay, like, okay, fine. And then I'm going to skip to where it gets real egregious. So it says um, they're, they're forbidden from teaching the following concepts. One, that one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. Mm. Great, right? Like, yeah, let's definitely good. not teach that. Okay, good. Two, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, six, I'm going to skip a couple. Six, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. Uh, which again, critical race theory doesn't say that, but you right. can hear you can hear the the argument behind it. Seven, and any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. Um, so that gets to uh, don't make me feel bad about things, right? Or eight. That meritocracies or traits such as hard work ethic are racist or sexist or created by member uh, members, which is their wording, not mine, created by a members of a particular race to oppress members of another race. So, so fascinating. Because what, what's so interesting to me is that a lot of this is veiled language to say you can't be against white men, right? That, that's yep. so point seven is a great example so you can't teach anything that would cause an individual to feel com discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex, which is so fascinating because many people who aren't white men are experiencing that now and have historically. So they're really shooting themselves in the foot here, like because they don't see it, right? They're like, oh, we got to protect ourselves. And what's going to happen is there's going to be some, uh, you know, there's going to be some native kid sitting there in a history class and he's going to go, oh, I can sue the school based on what they're teaching based on this anti-CRT law. Uh, because that's pretty clear that I'm experiencing anguish as a native man as they're telling this story because they're telling it wrong. So, uh, yeah, guess I'm going to go get my hundred grand off the school, right? Um, I hope it's more than that. It, it won't be. It won't be that much, probably. But... I think it, I think it's so fascinating. Like it's, is this was this past or is this performative? Yes. No, no, no. Well, okay. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, and yes. So, so a couple things. One, um, though Texas has passed it through both our our state house and senate. Um, it's not the only document of its kind. A number of red states are have this kind of legislation coming through the works. Uh, this just happened to pass. In Texas, I think Texas is the first place to pass it. Um, two, so my housemate, Sue, who is in an administration of a school district here in Texas, is the one that brought this to my attention. And so I asked her once it had passed what it means because she is actually working with her school district to select new history books. Uh, that are actually more, oh. more. No, it's good, Kathy. Like that. Like okay. I'll, I'll have to send you some of the ones that they're advocating. Um, I get worried. No, no. I mean, she's doing the thing where it's like getting books that are actually more holistic and are actually telling the whole. Because the whole thing is they can't, um, they can't like go against the whatever the state standards are, but they can supplement them. And mm. so her group is working to say like, okay, so we have to use whatever the 
janky, you know, white supremacist history book that we have to use. But now here is a whole bunch of other resources we can equip teachers with to supplement this very narrow view. And so I asked her like, how this law being passed affects their ability to continue to choose these new books and supplement this material. And she said exactly what you did, Matt, that this is entirely performative, that the state legislature doesn't actually get to set these uh, these standards, and there's actually nothing that they can do about it. So this this is entirely a performative gesture. Um, one might liken it to a toddler's tantrum, if one were so. Inclined. That's just designed to say basically, which is so interesting. This is storytelling, right? This is this is memory manipulation. This is history. Is what they're saying is to all those who would vote for us. Remember. We're yep. for you and against anyone who's against yep. you. This has no power whatsoever. It's just the story we're telling. Yeah. Uh, and, and what's so crazy is, you know, we, we've all come from different pockets of the country that are steeped in some of those, you know, just kind of old time values. Right. And one of them certainly in various forms across a lot of our experiences is accountability, you know, stand up and be accountable for what you did wrong and that's certainly like a very Texan thing to say, you know, it's like, like you got a man's got to own up to what he done. <laughs> and like here we're saying, but don't be accountable for like other stuff. You stole my cattle. How dare you, sir? <laughs> right. But we enslaved thousands and thousands of people, but we don't want to be accountable to that. So, so, so that, that is the interesting, right? As soon as you say we, that's what this bill is trying to press against. They would say like, well, I didn't. Right. Right. And it is that like my, uh, I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago that my book club on race is reading minor feelings right now. Mm-hmm. And we just discussed the part where she talked about uh, white tears and this like insistence of on white people of not feeling bad. And I think what we, and Matt, this, I, I really honestly do want to bring it back around to Story King. This is what I think your book does really well, is it illustrates that when we're talking about systemic injustice, it is the reality that those things that were wrongs in the past, like I'm, I know very, very few white people who would say that slavery was okay. There are some of them. Um, yeah. We know they like exist, but handful, they right? true, right. They truly are a minority. Most, most of these people who are, who are, uh, railing against CRT would agree that slavery in America was bad where there's a disconnect is that they don't see, they don't know the story of how those historic injustices continue to shape the world that we live in today. So they, they, they do see a break between what happened then and their lived reality now and people of colors live reality now. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and in that context, specifically black Americans. Yeah. Right. And right. and but also because the way we've told history, United States history, is that slavery ended, therefore it's all better. Or Japanese internment, right? Oh well we right. we shut the camps down and then we kind of said we were sorry. In that case, we even at least had Right. Um reparations Reparations. uh some reparations uh but but certainly no extended truth and reconciliation commission or anything like that right um nothing nothing about the the chinese exclusion act or you know any we just we just sort of like reversed the legislation but didn't address the harm that was caused 
throughout those years. Right, which is why folks in Portland can drive by this place and not know the history and not understand that that isn't so far ago. That's not so long ago. As well as with slavery, the way it's taught is that it was so long ago. How could those things have any implication to our current day realities? And I think that's part of the going way back in our conversation is America keeps trying to tell itself, tell ourselves, um, we are better than that. That's not who we are. And black (laughs) Americans, people, right. And people of color are like, that's exactly who we are from the very beginning. That is who we, the royal we of the United States, we are. And I say that as an immigrant, as a Korean American naturalized citizen, like, I, I do have some privilege because of my fair skin and what that communicates um, at a certain level to certain people. And because I'm college educated and I live in a white suburb, all of those things. But at the end of the day, as I continue to learn about our history and the realities of the stories I have not been told, it makes more and more sense why we are here, right? The memory, the story we've told is what I hope um, happens with all of our family vacations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they become gilded memories. Right. Yeah, just look at the right? photos. Like, right, so right. Fun. And they all capture like the f- best moments. You know, like we are chilling out literally in the pool. Mom, take a picture of us, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I think that's what we've done in history. But I, you know, going back, Matt, to your trilogy and the Story King, which I haven't read yet, um, but I've read the first two, is understanding when we find out the part that was gilded over, mm-hmm. what are our decisions? Mm-hmm. How do we behave? How do we respond, not only as individuals, but then as communities and as systems? Hmm. How much can you answer that without spoiling? Yeah. Um, I, I can tell you this. You, you know, in each book, I've introduced a new magic system. Uh, which is, so in the first book, we have this sort of zero sum magic where if I want something, I want to be stronger. I take the strength from someone else. If I want a beautiful singing voice, I, someone else gets my singing voice, right? Like that. In the second book, we start seeing that there's, this is because magic has been artificially altered, that there's a, uh, yeah, someone has stepped in to create magic being that way. It's not limited in that way. And that if you were to use it in the natural way, it doesn't require that sort of in give and take injustice. Uh, in the third book, we're introduced to a type of magic that is purely based in the alteration of memory and the way we tell stories. Uh, and it is, I think, one of the more powerful magics that we see because it gives power to who, who controls that storytelling, right? Who controls memory? Um, and that's what we see. It, there's a really core piece of the Elenil history. So Elenil are the ones who rule the Sunlit Lands, put in place essentially by God, the creator of the Sunlit Lands, to be the ones in charge. And we start digging into that story and discovering 
that there's some cracks in it, that, that that may not be the full truth. Uh, in fact, there's the peasant king, right? Which is this character that keeps coming up in the, in the side stories and that we see briefly in the second book has a saying in this book that says, um, I think I've got it here. Yeah. Lies and half truths always become the tools of men with evil intent. Um, that the idea is that if you find something that's not completely true being pushed, that almost certainly that there's evil at the, at the center of that, right? Uh, in some sense, it may not be conscious evil, uh, but it is evil nonetheless, that the movement from truth is a movement toward evil. Um, yeah, I don't know if that like really answers. Um, but pro- I made what I think is probably the scariest villain I've ever written. And he's literally named the historian. Uh, and not that historians are evil. Hey. No, no, that's not the point. But his thing is he's like kind of almost like necromancy, right? Like he's the key guy who understands this magic and he's using it to manipulate the people of the Sunlight Lands. Matt, so. can you confirm or deny the fact that you created the scariest villain you've ever created out of a composite of we three co-hosts? Oh, no, it's just you, Clay. The others aren't. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not a composite historian. Hello. He's a, he's a very charming, tall man who controls the people around him and they don't even know it. It's because of all those things I said about the Greek food. And he does not have a beard, correct? No beard. And he does hate Greek food. He likes really bland mashed potatoes made from an instant box. (laughs) And because he's a he, clearly not involving me at all. Uh, That's just a little on the nose. (laughs) His name is the Historian Kong. May Clorgan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know... I, uh, I, I found a really a tweet that made me laugh and then sob a little bit that I shared this week um, where a, a guy was in San Diego apparently speaking Spanish and a woman came up to him and said, we're in San Diego, speak English. And so he said, oh, yeah, no problem. Um, how do you say San Diego in English? <laughs> <laughs> and he said the confused look on her face made it feel like it was a Friday. Um, oh, but I, I say that to say specifically in our country, like literally our multicultural history is embedded in the names of everything. (laughs) Um, Cities and states. Yeah. I grew up in Missouri, which is a native American word. Okay. Jared, don't make stuff up. (laughs) I thought Missouri was English. San Diego in English. I'm still laughing. I know, right? It's, it's just an amazing moment. What's amazing is some of the responses on Twitter. People are like, well, that means St. James. And he's like, yeah. 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 <laughs> You're like not following the argument. I don't know if you missed. Yeah. And I, I mean, I enjoy sharing things like that semi-regularly because I was, I mean, I was in high school and I learned this, but I, I was really shocked that America does not have an official language. Like I just grew up assuming it was English and to learn that we intentionally don't have an official language was really surprising to me. And so I try to share that a lot for this, like, you know, we're in America. This is the, the one way you have to be. Um, but yeah, if we, if we would even listen to the stories that our places are telling us, our, our homes are telling us, I think we could see a, a much bigger story. So Matt, uh, that reminds me at this point, given the amount of, uh, languages you created for this trilogy, the poems, songs, uh, asides, appendix material. 
Uh, are you are you reaching Tolkien levels of uh, <laughs> no. bonus content? No, but I will say this: um, the there there was a I built a lot of what comes in the third book. I did know in the sense that I, I knew the origins of the LNL. I knew where the Sunlit Lands came from, things like that. And I love building trap doors in my novels where you have this enormous surprise. And then you look back and you're like, oh, that was all in there. Like, mm-hmm. I already knew that. So, like, one of the things you see in the very first book, if you read the appendix, is that in the stories we see these conflicting views of the same character, right? The, the peasant king or the glorious one, majestic one, uh, different peoples calling this character by different names, him acting a little differently in their stories, things like that. And that should give you the clue, right? There's something different here. Someone's got it wrong or both people have an aspect of it. And then in the third book, you recognize, oh, that was all, that's all explicable, actually. And the other thing you'll see in the third book, and this isn't a, you probably wouldn't just get this from an easy, you know, just reading through. You'd have to stop and think about it. But the first and second book have these huge, like, uh, appendices, right, where we tell different stories from the different cultures. And in the third book, all of almost everything in the appendix is moved into the actual story of the novel, that we recognize that these stories are not an extra thing at the end of the book. They're actually part of the action throughout the trilogy. Uh, so the only thing in the appendix in the third book is some some notes on like how music is made in one of the cultures. That's it. Uh, all the stories are brought into the main story. Uh, yeah. Which I don't know. I, I was pretty pleased with. <laughs> I could see, yeah, I could see that. I mean, that's kind of like this high level thing you're weaving mm-hmm. behind the story. Like there's, there's so many layers that you go deep to create something like this. It's got to be satisfying to be able to pull on any one of those threads and have such a rich tapestry. It, it, it is so key to how we understand the universe. So uh, I got in a fight with a troll that JR said to leave him alone, but I still fought with him this week. And literally this guy says, I just said, it's weird to me that someone who's so focused on theological purity, which is what he was talking about, is so unkind, right? And mm. his response was, Jesus isn't nice. Or what was the other word he said, JR? He wasn't nice. I don't remember. I, don't remember I ignored either. him. I took my own advice. Good for you. It was one of those things where essentially he said Jesus wasn't nice and also he wasn't someone whose character you would find attractive, right? He, he loved what? people too much to not confront them about their sin. Yeah, that's, that's the story he's telling. So as you start digging in, right, I said, oh, well, here's how God describes his own character. Here's places we see Jesus interacting with kindness. Uh, here's what God says is the most important thing in the law is love, right? So I'm pulling out all these stories from scripture. And then he responds with, this is the loving God who commanded the genocide of the Canaanites, right? If that's what you mean by love, then yes, that's God. So see, he's telling a story yes. using scripture to not, not to give revelation about God. That's not what he's doing. He's telling a story about God to say that my evil behavior is godlike. Uh, and that's the power of how we do history and how we tell stories. Uh, now, I'm telling a different story with the exact same text. My text is saying God is someone loving and kind and beautiful, and we should be trying to be like him even on the Internet, even in comments, right? Uh, that's a different story. 
Now, is one of those stories true and one false? Like, obviously, I think so. Uh, and this guy, I don't even know if he legitimately thinks his story is true. Um, but but that's what he's been pushing toward, right? Um, and this is it's just the way we do things. Um, i I tell you one more quick story with my kids. Allie and I were driving into Portland with some of her ballerina friends. This was several years ago. So they were early teens and we drove through the traffic was bad. So I was like, Oh, we're going to drive through the neighborhood here instead of staying on the highway. And the neighborhood I took them through is called the MLK neighborhood. It's where a lot of the African. So what's that like? (laughs) So a lot of the black Americans in Portland were pushed out of the city center. They were pushed North and East at a certain point because they wanted to revitalize quote the city center. Right. And this was decades ago. But so we're driving down MLK Boulevard, and one of the girls goes, what's Milk Boulevard? Ha, 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 milk, milk. And Allie has this horrified look on her face. Uh, and I said, oh, it's MLK. And they're like, what is that? Right? And they're young. Whoa. They're young. They're really young. So I said, well, MLK, Martin Luther King. And they knew, oh, they're like, oh, 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 like MLK Day. Like they knew that much. Um, but they didn't know any of the details. And then one of them's like a wig shop. What is there? A lot of demand for wigs in Portland. Right. And it's like, okay, so there's Uh, complete disassociation or lack of knowledge about this other community, uh, that is literally five miles from their house. Mm -hmm. Um, why, why? Well, because in our community in her community, uh, the stories being told were exclusive of other communities that they want. Now I guarantee you, if you went up to any random stranger in the MLK neighborhood and asked them about some key white person from his JFK, of course they would know JFK. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be go- what's JFK Boulevard, right? Uh, because the, it, it's the opposite in a lot of minority communities. You must know the story of the majority culture to be able to interact in our society. Uh, so I don't know. There's a lot of really interesting stuff about those kinds of things. Right. Well, and it's not majority culture. We call it American history. Right. 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 And I think that's that's why, even in our conversation today, that like the royal we, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't fit that part of the royal mm-hmm. we, but I say that intentionally because... I want a fuller picture of history told. And that's why, you know, going back um, to your true trilogy, unless you sell out and become rich and famous and then write a fourth book and get a back tattoo, apparently, um, is that uh, there is a sense of responsibility to finding out what those truths are. Yeah, that's right. right? Once, Once our own sense of knowing is disrupted, um, I would think and hope that the tendency and desire would be to know more. That's right. And and so what I've enjoyed about your characters is, you know, sometimes it takes a little while, but there is that kind of wanting to know and get to the bottom. Um, and, uh, and, and what that does in terms of relationship with others. Again, so it's not just an individual's journey, Mm -hmm. but how those journeys interact. And I think that's why 
that's why I tell Peter who tends towards nonfiction when we're picking books at Goodwill (laughs) on vacation. Um, I tell him, you know, sometimes you should read fiction because it's going to help you imagine history in a different way. Um, Because if we read history in just the slices, we don't see the interaction between those different layers. And I think that's why I'm looking forward to sitting down with um, uh, Story King to kind of finish how these stories overlap, Mm -hmm. right? That's what's so dissatisfying about the way I was taught history is that um, even though, Clay, I did have an AP history teacher tell me, well, this is why that this is important, <laughs> is I didn't always understand the connection between historical events to the present day. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Right? Mm. And, and because we're only telling certain parts of our history in the United States, those connections can never be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's another thing that the book does well, right? Mm-hmm. You talk about yes. how fiction helps you imagine. So when you read one character who's offended that another character doesn't understand his background or experience, and then a book later, a five chapters later, he finds out that he's completely missed something pivotal in another character's experience, and it's all based on heritage, past, history, and all that. They're learning about each other on the page and you're learning about a lot more as a reader. And that happens over and over again in this trilogy for me. You know, it's interesting. I had a, I had a young woman write me after she read the second book and she said, did you know what was going to happen in our culture when you wrote this? And she's bringing up stuff about uh, tension between people of different ethnicities and the idea of like, kind of like uh you know, protests and she's pulling out all these different things and saying, this happened after the book came out. This happened after the book came out. And when you read the third one, you'll see like the proud boys who no one had heard of outside of like the Northwest. That's not true, but very few people. As I was writing the third book, I was like, I'm going to make up a group like them called the vain boys. Right. So they're in there and now everyone practically has heard of the proud boys. So now it feels like, Oh, it's a response to what happened nationally. No, it was written long before that. Um, what I love about it, what I told this girl, what I don't love this about our world, was like, you can predict the future by knowing who we have been and who we are. Not down to the moment, right? But <laughs> who to, we refuse to continue to not continue being. Right. Like you like when people are like, Why are you teaching your kid about concentration camps in America? I'm like, it's literally happening right now. They're like, Well, we don't put people in jail that we don't know for sure that they're criminals. I was like, what is Guantanamo Bay? <laughs> what is what is our ridiculous bail system? I mean, yeah, there's so many examples of it. We can't see it in today because we are not making the correct moral choices about our past. Uh, it blinds us to our reality. It's like breaking a mirror uh, and then saying, oh, I don't know what I look like, right? It, it's ridiculous. It doesn't change who we are. And it's amazing that I mean, the one quote that everybody knows about history is, those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. That's the <laughs> yeah. Diana quote, right? And so, so first of all, why don't you want to learn it and know it, if that's the truth? But even if you know your history, you are still doomed to repeat it. 
Like that is human nature. That's what we see over and over again. Well, and that's to Kathy's point. That's why I wanted this story about teens to be, I think most of the teens I know actually want to know what the world is and they want to change it for the better. And I think that's something we lose as we age. Many of us do. Um, but this book is targeting teenagers. And part of the message to them is one, you can discover the truth even when it's painful and you can be part of changing the world for the better. And two, you don't have to do it alone. You can do it with your friends and you can have like this found family of people who know the truth and are working to better themselves in the world. And I think that's something I just, I don't know if that message is out there enough for, for teenagers. There's a lot of, uh, yeah. Anyway, all that to say. Can, can I ask one last question? Of course. I know that when you started to write this book, I mean, it was, it was such a central part of your experience with your very close friend Shasta. Mm-hmm. And, and now you've gone all the way through to the end of the story. And I'm just curious, as you've kind of reflected on that, she, she you know, you did not share this part of the story with her, but I, I think her spirit's kind of been a pivotal part of, of this as well, hasn't it? For sure. Um, yeah, there, there's a decent, you can't touch on these issues without a decent piece of it being about grief, right? It has to be. Uh, because when we discover truths that are painful, there, there's grief, there's trauma that comes from that. Um, for those who've read the first two books, like here's a decent sized spoiler, right? For the second one is that the, the terminally ill person in the sunlit lands doesn't, she doesn't get a magic healing, right? Bad things still happen. She dies and she's not, she doesn't get resurrected in the third book. Um, and I, I think that's important. I think that's really key, actually, in the reality of the worlds we inhabit, including ones we imagine. Like, there's, I believe in a resurrection, right? But I don't believe it happens every day uh, for every person physically. Um, Yeah, and so part of the reality in the third book is this, um, what I was most excited, what I wanted to do in the third book was to have a book that was satisfying. That You get to the end and you go, I know where all the characters are and I feel good about their lives. And like, I, not that everyone has a happy ending, but that there's, um, there's closure, right? That you feel good about it. And I think there's been trilogies. I was writing this, the new star Wars trilogy, uh, had just come out as I was writing this book, the last movie in it. And I was really, there were so many great things about that movie, but I was really dissatisfied with the way it left most of the characters. Uh, I didn't end it going, ah, oh, I feel good. The story is done. Right? Except for Emperor Palpatine, right? That was my favorite part. But other really, that, really felt like it brought his six, his uh, nine, nine film journey to a satisfying conclusion. Yes, exactly. It's his story at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I just, I wanted people to get to the end and go like, I wanted them to feel good and feel like they got a full story and they understood what happened to the characters and all those things. Yeah. Well, uh, I've only read the unedited first draft, but I loved it, and I'm looking forward to reading the real thing. Um, probably going to have to do a full series reread, uh, which actually Amanda is already doing, Matt, so she is working her way through Crescent Stone right now. Nice. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's great, and you've gotten some really positive reviews. I, I want to wrap us up, but you got a star review in Kirkus. Um, what other kind of feedback have you gotten um, so far, even before the book is officially out. 
Yeah. Um, so it's not a starred review. There. Oh, it's just a review. It's a, a nice review. review. Kirk, okay. if you don't know, is notoriously cranky about books. Like when Kirkus reviews a book, a lot of times authors are scared. They're like, oh no, Kirkus reviewed it. And so I went and it was very positive. Uh, there's one, there was one thing that said like, yeah, it gets a little overly complicated sometimes. I'm like, well, that's fair. Uh, but yeah, they were saying it was a satisfying conclusion to a story with a rich story world, uh, which is those two things were things I was so passionate about making sure was true of this third book. Uh, and then Booklist, theirs isn't released yet. So Booklist is the American Library Association. Uh, but their review, what I love about it is they say this was a, this is a really, you know, essentially they say it's a satisfying ending, lots of unexpected action, kind of epic. And then they say, be sure to buy the first two books for the collection as well. So they basically said, buy the whole trilogy, which is, which is pretty awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, I can't wait to see what happens with this book. Um, hopefully it does the typical uh, thing and picks up a bunch of new readers for the whole trilogy. Uh, and that awesome cover, in addition to making a great back tattoo, should get a lot of folks wanting to pick it up off the shelves. So very excited. Um, all right. So Matt, as the guest on our show, we wanted to invite you to uh, talk about what's fascinating you this week. But yeah. I will let you go last because okay. so, we sprang it on you. So you all have time to think about it. Um, Surprise! Yeah. So, uh, Clay, what's fascinating you this week? Well, I want to say mayor of Eastwood, but I don't know if I've done that on here or not I don't think yet. you have. Kathy, did you make a face? Uh, no. Nope. Yeah. That's just the face. You made a face. Has. I don't know if it was a face I at did. me or not. Has anybody watched it? Not yet. Not yet. No. my two-watch list. Oh, my so, goodness. My list is so long. Uh, it was... Murder. Yeah. You murdered my daughter. Murdered my daughter. Yeah, it, it is really good, I think. I love a good mystery. This one is... It's one of those ones where it really focuses on the community and the family you know, aspect of what's happening in this place. Um. So it, the last episode dropped. We finished it over the weekend, and I think Kate Winslet's amazing in it. Um, but all the performances are pretty great. Jean Smart, man, she's just popping up everywhere these yeah. days, and she is so great. Uh, I can't, I can't even believe how much she makes me laugh or think. And um, yeah, so it was a satisfying series. I thought it had some twists. It had some surprises. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't like fully processed it. Just, it's definitely got a lot of reveals and twists and turns. Um, so yeah, I'll just, I'll just make that my, it's on HBO max and, uh, I think it's worth a watch. Awesome. I can't wait to dive into it. Uh, we're, we're working our way through warrior still, which is terrific. I convinced Amanda to join me in watching it. So, um, Anyway, uh, I am a little bit more conflicted about my pick. Uh, I got a chance while we were on vacation to see A Quiet Place 2. Mm. And, you know, everyone loved this movie. Was it It, quieter than the first one? It was actually not, which the I, I was, I was, a quieter I was, place. I actually did. I actually did clock that Matt because he, I'm conflicted about the first movie because it was a terrific theatrical experience mm-hmm. because of the fact that so much of the movie is so silent. Except for my and dad so was, eating popcorn next to me. Right. So we went, we saw the original one at an Alamo draft house, which is famous for their no talking and texting policy. And the couple that went with us got a hummus plate, which had like carrots and celery and peppers. 
And there's one scene in the first film where the dad takes the son to a waterfall. And so there's noise around so they can kind of talk. And what you heard in the theater was every person in the theater who had gotten popcorn or any other kind of food, shoving it into their mouth as fast as they could, because it was like the one part of the movie where you could eat without it, like being so noisy and disruptive. So, so again, the, the, I did not think the movie itself was actually very good. Um, but it was a fun theatrical experience because of that, like, you know, the, the massive amount of silence. Right. I would say this new film, if you liked the first one, you like the second one, they're basically the same movie, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you get to see more of the monster, but actually a lot of the parts where people were being quiet, I noticed, I noticed there were more scenes where there was like a score under it this time. Mm. Um, which, which I, I was confused why, uh, there are also a couple of there are a couple of really, in my opinion, egregious scenes where characters do something only so they can make noise in some of the monsters. It, it doesn't actually make sense for their character in any yes. meaningful way. Um, yeah, they were like, did you see it already, Kathy? We need to. Yeah, we, we saw it on vacation. Okay, okay, yeah. We need to break all this bubble wrap. Like that? Yeah, where the boy... Okay, I'll just say this for Kathy. Where the boy decides to go up out of... Okay. Yes! Yeah. Oh my I was, gosh! I was livid. I was like, this is so stupid. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absol- I totally agree. And then I'm I'm still actually very angry that uh, monsters that hunt by sound exclusively can be hurt by a loud noise. Um, this... At the very beginning of the first movie, I was like, well, I assume they've tried loud noises on these things. That's daredevil uh, rules, man. Super yeah, hearing. But, but, but the whole thing in this movie was that like these monsters were unstoppable. And then nice. at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, all you have to do is make a loud noise and it stops them. But it's a specific loud noise. Yeah. Is it? Is it? Yeah, is it? I kind of. I mean, kind of. First movie. Kind of, it is. But I totally song. agree with you on the, the the kid, the boy, the son. And we watched it on vacation as well because our flight got delayed. So we were like, okay. we have more time. Yeah. Well, let's go see a movie. Um, what were the children's reactions to this film? Oh, they liked the monster. Okay, yeah. Um, and I think I ruined it for them because I... The takeaway for me was to listen to your mother and stay put when she says stay put. <laughs> right? Like, I was like, why did he get up? What, I don't see what else you would take away from that movie, Kathy. Right? Like, that is, she told yeah. you to stay. Yep. And then what did you do? And then all of these. Stay. Right? And yep. then the dominoes. Yep. So, uh, as we're walking out, I looked at them and I said, so the moral of the story is listen to your mother. Yep. And they were like, shoot, man, now we're going to be stuck on a plane with her for a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know how you would rate it, Kathy. I would say if you're going to see it, go see it in the theater. Um, set your expectations low. You'll probably enjoy your time in the theater seeing it, but like pretty forgettable again for me. I found it enjoyable as a summer movie. Like I just put my head in that space like – I'm not looking for an amazing cinematic experience that's going to move me to tears. Um, there was a jump scare or two that did that yep. jump scared me. Yep. yep. <laughs> and I know it scared the boys because they did talk about like, the, oh, I wasn't expecting that. The birds? Uh, oh, God. And I hate birds. You hate oh, birds? So I don't like, well, okay, I do like birds. 
fried chicken. Yes. <laughs> right? Your stories. Oh my gosh. I like those birds, but I don't. So dark. Right, but it's cre- birds are creepy. <laughs> you know the movie. They're, you know they used to be the dinosaurs. Birds. So. <sighs> so yeah. So the, there were good jump scares that like, oh, and then the backstory, like the, the day one thing it was like, oh, I like Just because you got to see John Krasinski some more? No, actually, he's not my type. <laughs> not my type. He's our type Real? as America. Is he? Yeah. As white men. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For white oh, men. Yeah. He, did, white he, man. Did have, he did have a beard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too. I, that, and his hands were dirty. So. Well, Kathy, what's your pick? Uh, I assume okay. it's not a quiet place, too. No, it is not. Um, it is actually a book I picked up at Goodwill, um, and it's an old book uh, called Nisei Daughter, um, Second Generation Daughter by Monica Son or Sone. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but it is um, a memoir about a young Japanese-American girl who grows up out, uh, I think, in Seattle. And then her and her family, she and her family, have to relocate. And they are sent to the concentration camp. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-huh. And and what that does. So I'm still working my way through the book. I'm still – this is before um, they are incarcerated, but – uh, her painting of life as a second-gen Japanese-American. I'm really kind of enjoying the cultural tension, how she's experiencing the, like, I'm American, but my parents are not. Um, and yet her life is so tied to the Japanese, Japanese-American community there in Seattle. Um, it was uh, So I'm curious, Kathy, yeah. given that you're, I mean, you're Korean American, not Japanese American. Yeah. And you're not growing up in the thirties and forties, but like how, how is, how much overlap, like 10%, 50%, like how much are you resonating with her experiences? Yeah, there's, I I mean, so far at more than 50%. Okay. Um, So, you know, there's the language part of Mm -hmm. like what you speak at home and what you hear at home and then what you're communicating and how you communicate with your peers. And then um, this, this overlap of very distinctive for her kind of Japanese cultural uh, experiences. And for me, that all happened in the context of either family or church or very Korean experiences. And this kind of, you know, when you're little and right now she's still elementary school age, it's the, like, your parents are embarrassing (laughs) because they don't, because they're not American Mm. and you think you are. Mm. Yeah. So that part, I kind of understand. And I experienced that very clearly when I moved into the suburbs um, in second grade. So before that, we were on the north side of Chicago in a very kind of um, diverse immigrant. Um, all my all my close friends were all children of or immigrants themselves. And um, so that's there is a lot of that overlap of, um, and then even the the parents. And their cultural pride of being Japanese, um, and and not American, and I I can relate to that. And the book was written, published in 1953, 
So there's like a new preface for the 1979 edition, and then um, and then another in the 12th printing, 2002. So there was no new preface there. So the other part that's fascinating to me is language and how the terms oriental are still used mm. to oh, describe yeah. people, right? Interesting. Yeah. And so I, I had to prepare myself because the first couple chapters I was like, ah! <laughs> and then I have to remember, oh, this is 1953 when the book is full pop first published. Wow, so that's like very fresh after the Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm enjoying it and can't wait to finish it. Um one other just technical question. Yeah. Uh, when you buy a book at a thrift store, how do you get it onto your Kindle? <laughs> you just set it on top, I, right? I yeah. Oh, okay. Put okay. It on, okay. Well, I put it on my imaginary Kindle cuz I don't <laughs> have one. <laughs> which is which is hard on vacation, to be honest. Exactly. Because then it's, right? Because I took a library book on vacation, uh-huh. and I kind of hemmed and hawed about that. Like, oh, should I take a paperback book, or what should I do? But then then what if I want to keep the book? But I took a library book to take back. Peter took a Goodwill book, left it there, and picked up another book at the Goodwill. Nice. Yeah. Huh. All right, Matt. Uh, I just watched a wonderful documentary called Hero Dreams of Sushi. Oh, uh, yes. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. in Japan. There's a man who started a sushi. He left his home when he was very, very young. I think he said 12 years old uh, that his parents kicked him out. He ends up apprenticing into sushi restaurant business, and he becomes the world-renowned sushi maker. Uh, he has a tiny shop that has, I think, nine seats or something, nine or 12 seats. Uh, you have to, you have to try to get a seat at least a month ahead of time. Uh, he trains his people. He won't let them actually make eggs in his restaurant for 10 years. So the first like year or something is learning how to wring hot towels and like a certain number of years in, you're allowed to cut fish. And then at year 10, the hardest thing is making eggs. Uh, but it's amazing. It's actually really beautiful. It's about a man who just loves one thing and wants to do it well, uh, and his family. So I, man, I really enjoyed it. I was really captivated by it. Um, it's definitely worth your time. Hero Dreams of Sushi. It's called J I R O. Is how you spell hero. It also made me want sushi. Oh yeah. I was watching and not it on just a plane. any sushi. I was like, when are they bringing the sushi around? Right? Right? Um, like, like very specific, like beautiful, yeah, top grade, oh, and all these things I didn't know about it. Right? I was learning lots of things oh, yeah. about the fishing industry in Japan, like everything. There's different kinds of rice. The the rice dealer mm-hmm. will only sell this one kind of rice to Hiro and his family because he's like, no one else knows how to cook this correctly. Uh, stuff like that. I mean. And he's saying, like, if you don't eat the sushi when I put it on your plate, you're not getting it right. Like, you need to basically take one – he puts it on your plate, you put it in your mouth. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah, all like uh, the rice is meant to be body temperature, right? So when you're picking up yes. sushi out of a grocery store, uh, out of the fridge, like, that's not going to be something that Hero would even whoa, whoa, consider whoa, 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 whoa. sushi. Hang on. Are you – you're trying to tell me that this guy makes better sushi than grocery store sushi? Uh, 
Uh, he actually it depends on the grocery store. Got, <laughs> don't worry. It's this little tiny restaurant. I don't believe right? it. <laughs> he actually has a Michelin star because they said they have never gone there and gotten a bad piece of sushi. Uh, it's always perfect. He's the oldest person ever to receive a Michelin star. Um. So I, I don't want to overly complicate things, but should we plan to stop in Tokyo before or after we see Gracie for our uh, re- our <laughs> podcast? New Zealand, New Zealand. Why not? yeah, yes, yeah. Okay. I want to. I want to try sushi at that place. <laughs> I oh my gosh, I would love. I just to. won't be allowed to go there without my wife. She would for real murder me. <laughs> so. All right, folks. Uh, well, Matt, um, by the time this episode airs, the Story King will be out. Um, how would you like people to get a hold of you if they have burning questions or uh, praises to heap upon your, your head? <laughs> well, as always, if you can spell my name, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter, uh, which I know is a lot to ask. Uh, but it's M-I-K-A-L-A-T-O-S. Anyone with that last name is directly related to me. So they can point you in the right direction. But yeah, I'm Matt McLaudis on Twitter, Matt McLaudis on Facebook. Excellent. Uh, and it should be available everywhere books are sold. Uh, so make sure you get a copy of The Story King. And, you know, don't just take it from me. Take it from the American Library Association. If you haven't read The Crescent Stone and The Heartwood Crown yet, you better go back and start at the beginning because otherwise probably you'll miss some stuff in The Story King that Matt lovingly seeded in the first two installments. Uh, so. Also, my publisher just wrote me while we were recording this to say that a, a short story I set, I wrote that goes between Heartwood Crown and The Story King called Jason Wu and the Kidnapped Stories. Uh, is going to release on the same day as a uh, as Story King, oh, nice. like on their website or what? As a uh, Kindle one off? I think or? it's going to be an ebook only thing. Okay. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> what are we going to do? Unless you know me and I just send it to you, Kathy. Okay. <laughs> this will be the better. most expensive short story Kathy's ever bought. <laughs> I, know. I mean, buy a Kindle. <laughs> they have Kindle Cloud Reader where you can look at things on computer screens. My eyes get tired. Hello, my Clay. Eyes, my eyes. <laughs> so, Ocular. all right, folks, this has been episode 298. It's been all about Matt Michelotis and his trilogy finisher, The Story King. Matt, way to Taco stick with Lechi. Congratulations. Thank you. Woo-hoo! Uh, you only have one more book coming out this year. Is that correct? That is correct. One more in August. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, Talk we'll have, we'll be, we'll, we'll be sure if you want to bring you back on then to talk about uh, to talk about Journey to Love. But for now, folks, you have about three months to go ahead and read The Story King. So you're caught up and uh, abreast of everything Matt Michelotis has put out in the world. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care of yourselves out there. Make sure you get vaccinated and uh, take care of each other. 